Father, we come before you and before your word this morning, and whether we recognize it or not, um, we are people who desperately need to hear from you. And we need to hear from you through your word, where you reveal yourself to us. You haven't left us uh, to wonder who you are, to guess what you might be like, but you have, you've told us about yourself. You've used your words to call us into relationship with yourself. As so we pray this morning, uh, even as we turn to Philippians, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to you, our living Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. It's given for our good and for God's glory. You know, we turn to these verses this morning, and as we've seen before in the book of Philippians, I mean, Paul has these great passages where he talks about uh, some of the incredible and fundamental truths of, of the gospel, of God's love for us. And then, then you get these verses in a couple of places that sort of feels like, well, you know, wait a minute, we just, we just changed gears into the, to the very mundane. And it feels a little bit like that here, but we're going to see that, that what he is saying in these few verses is really central to the point he's making throughout the book of Philippians, because... Right now, right here, he puts front and center before us the, um, the issue of conflict. Issue of conflict. Okay, now, when you even hear that word, what, what's your emotional response? I mean, if you're like me, you kind of, you, you hear conflict and you start thinking about conflict and you start thinking about conflict in your own life and you think, okay, y'all look over there while I dash out the side door uh, and go running for cover. So maybe... That's your reaction. Oh no, here it comes. Or maybe, conflict, bring it on, <laughs> right? Maybe you swing in, in the other direction. But that's what he puts before us, a situation of conflict that arises in this particular church. And the, the point that we're going to see here is, is Paul speaks into the Philippians, as God speaks to the Philippians, and as God speaks to us. We see that, uh, just simply, that God cares about our conflict. He cares about it. He knows that we have it. He cares about how we walk through it, and he's deeply concerned about its effects uh, for us on our unity as his people. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at the reality of conflict. We're going to see Paul gives us something of a theology of conflict. And then we're going to talk about the gospel medicine for conflict that we see here in these verses. Okay, first, the the reality of conflict. As, As we started to say, even as we think about that word, it sort of catches us a little bit because you know that you have conflict in your life. We all do. Now, you might be at a moment and in certain relationships where that is front and center for you, or maybe it's more on the back burner, but we live lives that are so often lived in the, confl- in the context of relational conflict of one kind or another. It's a universal experience for us, and Paul knows that. Think about it for us even this week as we, as we enter into the holiday season. Okay, this is like open season on conflict for the next two months, right? For, for, for many of us, maybe. Maybe you're getting ready this week or uh, around Christmas to go home and spend time with friends or family, and there is conflict there. 
Maybe, it's, maybe in your family it's going to flare right up as soon as you walk in the door. Or maybe it's never going to be talked about, and that's the problem. But you, but you know the relationships you have that involve conflict. And so some of us are, are walking into spots over these next few weeks that are going to be very difficult and challenging for us. It is the universal experience for us. And it is so universal that our tendency sometimes is to minimize it just because it's like the air that we breathe. Because we have this trouble sometimes of minimizing the things that are of great importance and sometimes inflating the things that are of less importance. I've been thinking about these this last few weeks where you, you can't o- open a newspaper or turn on the news without hearing something about the dreaded H1N1, right, the swine flu. I have a lot of firsthand experience right now with the swine flu. It's come right through marching through my children over the past week and a half. And as we've read, listen to the news, you think, here comes the swine flu. The, the sky is falling, and we'd all better run for cover. Uh, yeah, I, I heard in, in the news a couple of weeks ago that since the onset of the swine flu in the United States in the summer, that uh, the pork industry has taken a dramatic downturn. Uh, that upwards of a billion dollars, something like that, has been lost to the pork industry because when you hear swine flu, you don't want to go buy bacon. And so much so they've said that one out of every six pork producers is probably going to go out of business because of the name, the swine flu. All right, well, our experience with our kids has been, with small kids at least, it's not that bad. We're making it through. It's just long. Uh, But the media, though, would have us think... And it's true for some people, but it is this horrible thing, and we must fix our eyes on it. Our own, my own family's experience has been it's been less than that. But take that and flip it around. And think about the ways in which in our own lives and in the culture around us, we minimize the effects of conflict when really they are staggering. That we overlook the thing that is maybe the most dangerous to us, that conflict can cause incredible pain and destruction in our individual lives, in our culture. But here Paul talks about in our church as well. He said this is something that we easily overlook maybe, but it is of incredible importance that conflict is a reality. And we see it here in the middle of the church. I mean, Paul opens up speaking uh, to the names these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. I feel certain that I'm mispronouncing those. Um, and the thing about these two women, though, is when you read about them in these first couple of verses, I mean, the, these women were, uh, were ministry leaders. I mean, they were people of, of repute, pillars in the church. It says, you know, he says here, they are, they are co-laborers with me. They've been a part of the work of the gospel along with Clement and all the others. They have been at the very center of the mission in Philippi to bring the gospel to the culture around them and hear conflict has come right into the very center of even church leadership, it seems like, here. Because, and, and Paul addresses it because he knows it's dangerous. Now, he does something that he very rarely does here. He names names. Okay, usually if you're reading through a letter of Paul, he will often, in the beginning of a letter, he'll mention the names of his companions that are with him, that he's, you know, he's writing with, or at the very end of a letter, he'll, he'll give all these specific names of people. Be sure and greet so-and-so and these guys and tell them we miss them and we're praying for them. But he rare, very rarely ever mentions somebody's name in the middle of the letter. There are a couple other times he does it when he mentions outright enemies of the gospel that he's warning people to stay away from. But here he's very clear he's talking about two beloved sisters in their church and he names them by name. Now, just think about this for a minute. Okay, the... This letter probably came to their church by the hands of Epaphroditus, who's mentioned in this letter. Paul sends him, likely with this letter, the Philippians. They would have gathered together for worship, and somebody would have stood up to read Paul's letter. Hey, everybody, Paul wrote us a letter. Let Let me read that to you. And so 
You can imagine them listening. They would, hear, they would have heard this in chapter 2, the first few verses. Just listen. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you can imagine these two women sitting on opposite ends of the room, nodding and thinking, yes, we need to be humble. We need, we need to lay ourselves down for the lives of the people around us. We need to love them with that kind of grace and humility. And then they gets right here in chapter 4, and it's like the spotlights come on. And he says, I'm talking about you, Syntyche, and I'm talking about you, Yodia. Which point you think, I need to go get a drink of water, right? You know, so, you know, get me out of here. Here's the spotlight on me. That's exactly what Paul is doing. Now, why? Only because he thinks this is of such incredible danger for them as a church body that if they have conflict that's going on that remains unresolved, then he knows it's going to kill them. And so he must bring it to the surface that they might deal with it. Now, you get the impression here, because he's calling it out in public, that it must have been publicly known. Okay, so everybody else in the congregation isn't thinking to themselves, wow, I wonder what's going on with them. They're thinking, wow, he called it like it is. What's going to happen next? Uh, Paul comes to them and tells them, verse 2, he says, I beg you, he says, I beg the two of you to agree in the Lord to deal with the conflict that you have. Paul is no stranger to conflict. He certainly knew conflict in the, in the unbelieving world that was coming against him, but he also knew conflict in ministry, too. In the book of Acts, it talks about Paul and his partner in ministry, Barnabas, how they travel planting churches. And at one point, they had a sharp disagreement over one of their other companions in ministry, a guy named John Mark. And John Mark apparently had been traveling with him at one point, and then he sort of flaked out and left. And then he came back. And Barnabas wanted to accept him back. And Paul said, no, we're not taking him with us. And Barnabas said, yes, we are. And they went their separate ways. Church kept growing. They kept planning. But he knew the reality of real conflict within the church himself. And so he knows what he speaks of when he comes to these two people and says, conflict is incredibly dangerous. He says to these two women, you've gotten stuck in the process. You've gotten derailed. You need encouragement to get on back on track and to deal what is, with what is going on between the two of you. For your sake, for the sake of the whole church. Okay, so we see first here just the reality of conflict. It's there and it's in our lives and it's here in the Philippian church. But secondly, we see something of Paul's theology of conflict. And, and his basic point is this. His, his fundamental belief is that unresolved conflict within the body of Christ or anywhere else is going to cause destruction. It will destroy the unity of God's people. Because unresolved conflict not only comes between us and, other, and, and God, it comes between, or not only comes between us and other people, but it comes between us and God too. Now, he, here's something about, let, let's try a couple diagrams for Paul's view of how all this works together. Commentators point out that the book of Philippians, it's a letter of friendship. Uh, it, it is one of the warmest and most personal and encouraging letters that Paul wrote anywhere in the New Testament. These people are friends and partners with him in ministry, and he's writing to encourage them. There are some things like this that he's pushing them in, but the letter is over, overwhelmingly warm. And the thing that he, that he 
paints for them in this, this friendship letter, this picture of connection as friends, is he says we're always friends in multiple directions. Okay? That there are always three parties. There's us, there's the, there's the person opposite us, and there is God. And that those three are tied. Now, here's the way we tend to think of our relationships, and here's the diagram. Imagine a capital letter L, okay, and people at the points of that diagram. At the very top, you have God, and then at the hinge down below, you have yourself, and then you have the, re- and then you have the friend, the rest of the community, other people that's out on, on the wing right there. And you know what happens to us when we experience conflict, serious conflict? We tend to think like this. Okay, here's, here's the diagram. It's God, it's me, it's this person. Well, if this gets lopped off, well, I mean, that's sad, but you still got a lowercase l, right? You still, I still got God and me, right? I mean, me and Jesus, at the end of the day, we're still okay, even though this relationship has been broken, That's the way we tend to think. But Paul's picture of it is more like a triangle. Again, you've got God at the top, we've got ourselves, and we've got our neighbor here. And and it it is a triangle. The lines go between us, and the lines from both directions go up to God at the same time. And the shift of that image is this, that if there is a break between you and someone else in the body of Christ, then there there is a rupture in your relationship with God as well. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not saying that uh, if there's a rupture in a relationship with someone else, that that can uh, jeopardize what Christ has done for us on the cross, that our salvation is in danger. It's not exactly what Paul is saying, but it's simply this, that when there is a break in relationship with others in the body of Christ, it has effects on our intimacy and our relationship with God, too. Those things are inextricably bound. Now, if you're a parent, you understand this. okay? Because let's say you walk in the room, if you have small children like I do, and you hear your children arguing and squabbling with each other. You walk in the room and you find out somebody's just taken the dump truck and whacked the other one over the head. Just to make up an example. Um, and here's what you don't think as a parent. You don't think, well, you know, I really have a solid relationship with this kid. And I have a solid relationship with this kid. And they're not getting along. And that's sort of unfortunate. But I'm okay with each of them. No. Because you're the parent. And it's a family. And when you as a parent look out and you see a break in relationship between two of your children, you realize there is a break that affects the whole family. And it's one thing when they're toddlers. It's another thing when you experience that, as many of us have, when everybody's all grown up. And there's that kind of conflict between siblings. Maybe you've seen the wreck of that in your own families. When something happens between us, it affects all the relationships. It affects the whole family. And that means it affects for us as individuals our own relationship with God. When we are not listening to Him in our dealings with others, there is an issue between us and Him as we seek to relate with Him. We cannot separate those two things out. And that's Paul's theology of conflict, that we are bound together, that it's not simply an unfortunate occurrence, but it's something that strikes at the very heart of a church community. It strikes at the very heart of our own relating with God and with others. This morning at the end of the service, we're going to be welcoming new members into our church. And if you have joined this church, you've seen this happen before, you might remember one of the the membership vows that you take. It's the last one. It says that that you you will promise to study the peace and purity of the church. 
which is kind of an archaic way of saying you're going to give yourself as a member of this congregation to investing in the peace, the reconciliation of the church. You're not going to let things go. You're not going to shove them under the carpet. You're not going to let yourself withdraw and get bitter. You are going to deal with conflict as it comes up. That's one of the things that we promise each other when we join this church. Uh, One commentator says this about, about Paul's picture of reconciliation here. He says, we see that for Paul, as for Jesus, the unity of the body of Christ is not dependent on the moral perfection of disciples. Rather... It depends on the commitment of Jesus' followers to the hard work of confession and seeking and offering of forgiveness and the practice of reconciliation. Okay, here's what he just said. He said, for a church to be the church, it is not dependent on us all being perfect people because we are not and won't be. The peace and purity of the church rests on the willingness of its people to do the hard work of confessing to each other of asking for forgiveness, of receiving it, of giving it to each other. It says that's, that's what holds a church together. Okay, there's the reality of conflict, this theology of conflict that affects relationships in both directions. What about your conflict? Where is it in your life right now? Maybe with friends of yours, maybe with former friends, family members, spouse, your kids. Maybe with other believers, as Paul speaks very directly here. You might have many relationships that leap to mind right now. Or, or maybe you're sitting here and you really can't think of, of any sort of source of conflict in your life. And that might be because none of them are flaring up right now. Or, or it might simply be this. You don't have any conflict in your life right now because every time that begins to show itself, you cut off the relationship and you run. Home, we've got this little miniature uh, um, pinball machine. And maybe you're like that little ball that gets loaded in the pin ma- pinball machine and you get thrown into the chaos of life. And what happens? You bounce off this relationship and you bounce off that one and you bounce off the other one. Alarms going off, but always heading in the other direction. No conflict because you don't stick around long enough to see it develop. Or, or maybe you're the other person that uh, you don't have any conflict in your life because you have eradicated everyone that's come your way, right? You, you're the Orkin man of your relationships. We're just going to fumigate them to death. And no, there's no conflict, and I don't know anybody anymore. You know, how, how do you tend to deal with conflict? Much same way, you know, we, we tend to deal with danger, right? There's the adrenaline rushes, and it's fight or flight. I, I'm, I'm either going to overwhelm you with my defensive response or I'm going to run away. But for most of us, most often, we don't really know what a healthy response to conflict looks like. We overwhelm or we run. What are we going to do? Where's the hope for us? Well, Paul points us to a very specific hope, the gospel medicine for conflict. He says the gospel is what you bring to bear in your conflict just as in every area of your life. He says the goodness of God's work towards us has got to play out in our relationships and our work towards each other. And we see a little bit of this in, in a verse that's extremely easy to misunderstand. So we're going we're to look at it. It says uh, in verse 2 again, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Okay, the way that that is translated actually makes us think about sort of the opposite of what it actually means. Because we read this and we're like, okay, we don't know what the problem was, but just can't you guys just have the same opinion, right? Can't you just 
agree on this. Okay, Yodia, clearly Syntyche is right. The sanctuary needs green curtains, not blue curtains. Or something much more significant. You know, uh, you're talking about how to reach the city of Philippi. You know, two diff- very different ideas. Why can't you just have the same idea? As if that what God is, in, in, and Paul is pushing us towards here, is some sort of uniformity. But that's actually not what he's saying. What, what gets translated as agree in the Lord here, agree, it's, it's a word that comes up in the Greek several times throughout the book of Philippians. And it's uh, the same thing that was back in 1 Corinthians 2, which I, I mentioned earlier, where he says this, um, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That's being of the same mind. That's the same thing that gets translated as agree here. And he goes on in chapter 2 and he says, Remember Jesus who was uh, one with God and yet he, what did he do? He said he took on flesh. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to death on a cross. He says, have that same mind in yourselves, the mind of Christ. Have that same mind. Same word here. He's not saying agree like just have the same opinion. He's saying be unified. That's what he means by agree in the Lord. Remember your connection that you have in Jesus and let that win the day. Not the thing that you're disagreeing over. Now, it's interesting when he does that, notice he doesn't give them any of the the how-to's of how to work through conflict. It doesn't give them a six-step progression of how to work through their issue. And those things are important. But Paul instead is going to the the foundational truth that they need. He doesn't go to methodology. Here are a few tools in your bag to fix this. He goes instead to the underlying big truth that the gospel is true for you and it is about God's reconciling work with you. And so we must be people who reconcile. Whatever you guys decide on in this issue you disagree about, be one in the Lord. Be unified in the Lord. Because Paul points us back to the fact that we have a reconciling God. Now, he mentions that here when he, when he brings into view this being in agreement in the Lord. But it's, it runs right through Paul's writings. Here's what he says in, listen with me, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, when he speaks about the fact that we follow a God who is committed to reconciling with us. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, Paul is reminding them that this is the gospel, a God who reconciles. He looks at these two women and says, there has been some sort of break in relationship for the two of you, but don't you understand the greatest possible relational break has already happened and been healed? Don't you know the million miles you were away from your God? The break in relationship between us and him. And he says, God didn't just sit sit around and let that happen. What does he do? He comes after us. God is a reconciling God. And he says, and he's come to give us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, God reconciles, brings us to himself in Jesus and sends us out to share that same message with others. And he sends us into the church to say, God has reconciled us to himself. We must be reconciled to each other. Where's the power to actually get over our differences? Look at the differences that existed between us and God. And he did not let that stand in the way. 
And Paul's riveting them back to this truth. He says, the only way you're going to be reconciling people and know this kind of healing in your relationships or in the church is if you are constantly digging down deeper into this reality of God's love and reconciliation for you. Had a big storm here the last couple of weeks. I don't know how it affected your neighborhood. We had trees all down all over our neighborhood. Looked across the street to our neighbor, and, and his uh, huge oak tree had fallen over the front of his house and, and smashed into his bedroom. Our next door neighbor uh, had two big oak trees that fell over, kind of sideways in a lot. Didn't hit the didn't hit the house. And then catty corner from us. Uh, another family that had a hundred foot oak tree that didn't fall, but they came out the next day and it, and it was leaning. And they had to, and they'd have somebody come in and and take it down. And as I was talking to one of my neighbors, the one with it on the house, he said, "Yeah, I've just gotten kind of a fast education on trees." He said, "If you notice, like all these trees that are down around here, they're all oak trees, and they're all incredibly tall, and they look incredibly strong, but they have very shallow roots. So the, when the ground gets really wet." They rock and fall out. And it was true. You looked at these trees that had fallen over. Enormous trees and, and not very big roots that were sticking out there. And what Paul is telling us is that we have to be a people who sink our roots down deeply in the gospel. Because if we don't, when the storms of conflict come, we will be toppled over. It says they must go down deep. And you see, when Paul says this, do you see how very different his answer is than if he had simply gotten up and said, look, y'all, get in line, okay? Buck up, stop arguing, and just walk in a straight line. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes straight to their heart, not just their outer actions, because he wants them to be transformed, not by something new, but by something old, the work of Christ that is already present in their life. He's always bringing them back to that. He says to them, these, these beloved um, participants with him in ministry, these comrades in ministry, he says to them, look, you know the gospel. It needs to go down deeper in your life. You've been involved in professional Christian ministry, and there's this break that shows there, there is room for the gospel to go deeper in your life. It is true for all of us. For them and for us as well. In fact, he goes further than that. When he hammers them back to the gospel, look at the way he just so beautifully expresses who they are uh, in, verse, in verses 2 and 3. He says, um, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And this is one of uh, a small section, a small number of passages in Scripture that use this image of God with a book. Where it's got our names in it. The names of his people. And he says, God's got that book open and we're in there. We are God's children. He opens up that book and sees our name. And one day he's going to open that book up and read our name and welcome us home. You see? He said, we are God's people. And we must live like that. We must be reconciled to one another. So our roots must go much deeper than simply being a nice person or a conflict avoider or even a conflict embracer. But he points us back to the gospel. People who know 
conflict healing in our own relationship with God, and we let that begin to spill out in our relationships with each other. And then lastly right there, he, though he goes big picture on them, he does do one other thing for them. He gives them a friend. Because when he looks, when he says here in verse uh, 3, he says, um, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Okay, he is apparently speaking uh, with a nickname to a specific person in the congregation. Some of your, your, your translation may, may have a little footnote that this could be a proper name. It's probably not. It's probably a description of somebody. So they would have heard loyal companion, companion loyal yoke fellow, and they would have known who he was talking about. Oh, he's talking about him. And he's telling this person in the church, walk alongside these two women and help them to remember the gospel and to walk out a life of reconciliation. You see, he pushes them right back in the community. Let your community be a part of the work of the gospel going deep in you and bringing healing for you and threading throughout the whole community because we are tied together. Paul's gospel medicine here is to go big picture. So I'm just going to conclude with this, going to one other big picture place that Paul goes to. In 1 Corinthians 12, he speaks about, in one of the most extended passages in Scripture, about what it means for us as the body of Christ, members of the church, to relate together. Some people are feet, some people are ears. We need the body. We all, we're all together. And that is the context in which he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Now, unless you've ever heard a sermon on that passage, then probably the only place you've really heard it read is at weddings. And that's a good place to have it read because we want to be reminded of love when we step into marriage. But you see, its context in 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about relating within the body of Christ in the church. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13. So let me end with that. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith... Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would walk alongside us in the very difficult work of stepping towards reconciliation and healing in broken relationships. May we not avoid, may we not lead with our defensiveness, but in openness to your spirit. May we really come to see and believe that when there is rupture between us, that, that, that there, is, there is tension between us and you. Not your disapproval, not your frowning face, but the loving care of a father who calls us into relationship with himself, but who has called us into relationship with each other. Those relationships matter. So may we not ignore them. Father, we pray that uh, our church would be marked by a deep gospel unity. 
and by a readiness to deal with conflict as it comes up, gracious and humble hearts as we come to each other, so that you might be glorified, so that your name might be shown to be beautiful here in this church. And so uh, for our good and also for the watching world that they would see that something is different about Christian community because we all have conflict, but Christians somehow know how to deal with it rightly. May that be a light to the world. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.